Praise the Lord. Friends, can I hear you say praise the Lord this morning? Uh, uh, can I hear you say praise the Lord louder than that? Praise the Lord, friends. Amen. Hallelujah. Oh, we have a singer, a songwriter for us today. If you've been paying a little bit of attention to the tiny print at the bottom of the hymns as we've been going, you'll notice that all of the hymns so far this morning and will continue throughout this morning are written by one person. Her name is Fanny Crosby, Francis Jane Crosby, um, and she is our icon for the morning. We're continuing in this series as we look at different icons of the faith, people who are paragons of faithfulness, who have lived a witness and testimony to the gospel in a way that can inspire and encourage us. And so as we talk about them, we've been moving them from the altar to the sides of the sanctuary here, and so they are hanging in the windows with the various quotes as an effort to sum up who they are. We have uh, Julian of Norwich over here. We have Harriet Tubman over there. Last week's Sandu Sadar Singh there. And this morning, Fanny Crosby. Friends, let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Friends, we love, we love an underdog story. There's just something so compelling and exciting about seeing someone take on the world with nothing but grit and tenacity. We want to hear about people who conquered every obstacle life and the world could throw at them by sheer force of will and dedication. We love the underdog story so much that we think sometimes it has to be our story as well, that the marker of the Christian faith is our ability to overcome obstacles by the power of our own dogged determination. But this may not be the right way to tell the story of faith. Frances Jane Crosby, or Fanny Crosby as she is commonly known, tends to have her story told in the familiar shape of this underdog narrative. And so the story is told like this. Fanny Crosby is one of history's most beloved and prolific hymn writers in spite of tragically going blind just six weeks after her birth in 1820. She developed some sort of an eye infection in infancy while the family's regular doctor was away, and the doctor filling in at the time prescribed hot mustard compresses to be applied to her eyes. The mustard burned her retinas, destroying her vision, and leaving her blind for the rest of her life. It was said in her later years you could actually see the scar tissue in her eyes. And it turned out that the doctor who prescribed the remedy wasn't actually a doctor at all. In fact, he lacked any sort of medical training, and he was promptly run out of town and never heard from again. A visit with a distinguished surgeon when Crosby was five years old confirmed that she would never, be, never again be able to see much to her mother's distress. But for her part, Crosby was not particularly distraught and would even later say that she had never felt even a spark of resentment against the man who caused her loss of vision. And as the story is so often told, Crosby never let this debilitating handicap limit her as she overcame her disability to become the hymn writer history has remembered. It's a great underdog story, and it's factually accurate. It's just not how Frances Crosby would tell her own story. 
In an autobiography written in her late 80s, Crosby doesn't open with a story about losing her sight, and in fact, she doesn't even mention that she's blind until the second chapter. And when she does, before she tells the story, she implores the reader, do not think that those who are deprived of physical vision are shut out from the best of best that earth has to offer her children. The blind can do nearly anything that the sighted may also do, she says, with only a few notable exceptions, including sculpture and astronomy. And she asks, why should the blind be regarded as objects of pity? And it is only then, only when it is clear to the reader that she will not be co-opted into the restrictive narrative of a disability overcome, that she does tell her own story of being blind. On numerous occasions, Francis Crosby said, if perfect earthly sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. And once, in fact, as the story goes, after Francis had become a well-known hymn writer, a traveling preacher from overseas was introduced to her and immediately said, Miss Crosby, I think it is a great pity that the good master, when he showered so many gifts upon you, did not give you sight. And she said to him, do you know that if at my birth I had been able to make one petition to my creator, it would have been that I should be made blind. And this preacher was astonished and he asked her why. And she responded, because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. This was Francis Jane Crosby through and through, who knew well that her story and the story of faith was not that of an underdog who overcomes by sheer force of strength, but rather the life transformed by the all-encompassing love of God. Crosby was steeped in the Christian faith from a young age. She was an only child, and her father died before she was a year old, leaving her to be raised by her mother, who worked hard to provide for her daughter. And when she wasn't running out around outside with friends and classmates, Frances spent a lot of time with her grandmother, who read to her from the Bible and patiently answered Frances's endless questions about faith. And when she was about eight, they moved for her mother's work, and then Frances, instead of being under the patient care of her grandmother, was frequently under the care of the landlady they moved in with, who instructed Frances in memorizing Scripture. By the age of 15, Crosby had memorized, word for word, all four Gospels, the first five books of the Old Testament, Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, and many of the Psalms. She loved education. She attended the New York Institute of the Blind after she was accepted in 1834, and she attended there for eight years before continuing there as a teacher for 15 years after. And her education only honed her skills for poetry, which she began at a young age. And while she was at New York Institution for the Blind, she had two volumes of poetry published, and then a third was published soon after. And she began making a name for herself in the world of literature. And while she had written hymns to this point, she hadn't committed herself to the work wholeheartedly until after a spiritually transformative experience in November of 1850. There were revival meetings being held in a Methodist church nearby, and so, Frances Crosby attended with friends, looking for a peace and a joy she craved but couldn't seem to capture, until one evening, during the revival, when she went forward from her pew to the altar alone. And after a prayer, while she was there, the congregation began to sing a song written by Isaac Watts, 
Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die. And when the church had made their way through to the fourth stanza, and through to the third line of the fourth stanza, when they sang, Here, Lord, I give myself away, Crosby says that her very soul was flooded with a celestial light. She sprang to her feet shouting, Hallelujah. And she felt she was God's alone. Therefore, Paul writes, as God's choice, holy and loved. He's writing the church in Colossae, a group of some 30 or 40 Christians Paul has never met, in a church that Paul didn't establish himself but was introduced to by a friend. It's a letter of encouragement and of guidance, hoping to aid the Colossians while they are beset with a variety of teaching and instructions, trying to influence them from every side. Influences that Paul says are attempting to add something unnecessary and unhelpful and maybe even destructive to their faith. And so he is trying to draw them back to the simple and the stable foundation of the gospel and salvation in Christ which can make this particular portion of the letter puzzling because it sounds so much like Paul is giving a list of extra things to do in order to be good people. And the passage immediately before this one doesn't help much either as it seems to contain a list of things not to do. Paul writes there about setting aside our old selves and with them all moral corruption and greed and anger and rage and malice and slander and obscene language. Don't do this, he seems to be saying, or that, or that, or that, but do this, and this, and that, and that also. Overcome who you used to be with willpower alone. And it sounds exhausting. But thankfully, the story of faith isn't about overtaking obstacles with sheer human strength. And that's not what Paul is describing here. Therefore, Paul writes, And in that, therefore, he's referencing back to the whole letter prior, and then he summarizes it briefly before continuing the thought. Therefore, as God's choice, holy and loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. The starting point for Paul is that we are chosen and loved by God. The moral guidance is not an additional teaching, but an extension of this holy identity. And it can almost be seen in his metaphor as he describes taking off our wayward ways like articles of clothing and exchanging them for more righteous attire. If we understand well who we are, that we are holy and loved, we'll see that our former ways no longer fit. And so they're not something to keep around. Pull them from the closet, take them off the hangers, donate them and wear the clothing that's comfortable and tailored to us. We're not forcing ourselves out of one outfit and into another. We're not trying to force an outward change that results in an inward transformation, but rather the other way around. God transforms from within, and we grow into the outward expressions of faith, welcoming the new attire of transformation. Blessed blessed assurance, Crosby writes once, Jesus is mine. So many of her songs capture exactly this sentiment, the wonderful assurance that God has chosen us, that we are holy and loved without having done anything. Now, she was criticized for this throughout her life and her time writing hymns, that her songs were too emotional in nature instead of doctrinal. But this was for her, as for Paul, the ultimate doctrinal truth. 
filled with his goodness, she continues in that same hymn, Blessed Assurance, and lost in his love. Not a story of conquering, of fighting tooth and nail, of harnessing will and strength to overcome alone, but of being wholly wrapped in the love of God, an inner transformation that led to outward expression and not the other way around. The word of Christ must live in you richly, Paul continues, and describes how to embed the word of Christ deep within, where it can remind us that we are loved, where it can work the wonder of transformation from deep within. Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, he says. Sing with gratitude and do all manner of speech and action in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, thanks to Francis Crosby, we have more than a few, we have more than a few great hymns to sing that remind us of this great truth. Over the span of her life, Frances Crosby counted at least 8,000 hymns that she wrote. Others have estimated the number to be upwards of 9,000. It's hard to keep track because she wrote with at least 200 different pen names because the publishers didn't want so much of their hymn books to all be written by just one person. She would sometimes compose seven or eight hymns in a day. Publishers would send her the topic of the hymn they'd like to include, she'd send back the next day maybe a dozen hymns. They'd pick the one they liked the best. There was in one instance that someone came and met her and said, I have this tune for a hymn that I'd like to play when I leave and go to this convocation in 40 minutes on the train. And so they played the tune for Francis Crosby. She sat down in 20 minutes, wrote a hymn, passed it off to the man, said, here is your hymn. It is called Safe in the Arms of Jesus. Read it on the train. You don't want to be late. She was so filled with so many hymns that they seemed to just bubble up out of her. The word of Christ must live in you richly, Paul says, and it would seem that for Fanny Crosby, it did. It was in there all the time, waiting to be expressed in songs to be sung, but also in the work to be done. Frances Crosby took on all manner of mission work throughout her life, particularly in New York City where she lived, and particularly there with the youth and with the poor. She gave all that she had, herself eventually ending up destitute in her later years, living in the home that she founded for those that didn't have anywhere else to go in their older age. Institutions that have continued throughout the 1900s and some even to uh, even until today. For she found an inner assurance, knew that she was God's chosen, holy, and loved. And that promise, that great gospel truth, worked within her to find expression on the outside. She would say, talking about her mission work with some of the youth in New York City, that that is all people want, love. That assurance that we are loved. Francis Crosby knew and could name that as the fundamental truth of the gospel. The most important thing to know. The most important thing to have. Love. To be loved by God. And so she sang it and she wrote it 8,000 different ways so that we could all hear those words and hang on to the ones that remind us that we are the same, holy and loved by God, 
chosen by God. Let the word of Christ dwell within you, Paul says. Hang on to whatever thing it is that reminds you of that truth deep within. It's really no wonder that he reaches for psalms and songs because that's how we remember great truths. When you put the words to the music, they stick around ever so much better. So he says, sing the songs. Sing them until you remember them. Sing them until you cannot forget them. Sing them deep within you so that you might always remember this truth, that you always might know the love of God, so that the love of God might work within us all, transforming us from within, a love that gets expressed on the outside. Let the word of Christ live deep within you, Paul says. That is all people want. Whatever it is that reminds us of that truth most strongly, hold on to that. Recite it, sing it, cherish it. Friends, we are God's chosen, holy and loved. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, I invite you to stand as you are able as we continue in our worship